friends. Welcome back to the show. It is my honor to be joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Joshua Ross. What's going on, man? Not much. You know, in my family, you are always referred to as Joshua Ross for one reason. Do you know why? <laughs> Dude, are you serious? Joshua Ross with the big rolling the I, R. I've you know? never heard this, man. Because when we graduated from grad school, the person who announced your name had a nice, substantial rolling of the R with your name. And so now my family refers to Joshua Ross. Dude, how, do you, how do you remember this and I don't? Um, well, there's a lot of things from school I remember that you don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if you, I think cause in many ways I was the one that carried us through both undergrad and grad school. Uh, you know, man, as long as your family just knows my name, I'll take it. <laughs> yes, we know you. There, you have a deep history with our family. Definitely know you. So, uh, Josh Ross, back in the podcast, you've been on half a dozen times, I would assume, at this point. And there's one thing we've never talked about, which is near and dear to you. It literally is, It's I, I believe it's tattooed on your skin as you're coughing Sorry, on a podcast. Uh, Josh has never had a microphone before, doesn't realize we don't like coughing. But he's here. I, I say that, but like I clear my throat. Like every, it's Anyway, that's embarrassing. Never mind. So, Joshua Ross, you literally have this tattooed on your shoulder, don't you? I don't know, man. I got a few tattoos. So which one are you talking about? Uh, not the one uh, about the the sailor that you love, but the the word became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> yes, John one twenty one fourteen. That's okay. You got that literally yeah, on your the, shoulder with the Greek word uh, mathetes mm-hmm. for disciple that goes through the middle of it. Yeah, which I had to translate yeah. for you because again, I'm the one. Who, <laughs> really? Who carried us That's through. how you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> not true at all. Okay. Uh, Incarnational ministry has always been near and dear to you. So that word incarnation, word becoming flesh, the idea of God becoming like literally human being. Right. Uh, Describe maybe thumbnail of what you would use for the word incarnational or the phrase incarnational ministry. How how I would describe it? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, man. I mean, with John 114, the word becoming flesh is just being being present, living among the people. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you're not just dropping in a place every once in a while. Like you are committed to understanding the values that are shaping a community. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk about practically for you, you've been in Memphis for 14 years now, which uh, right. I might've gotten that wrong when I introduced you earlier today in the service, but 14 years. And hey, one time of, flies, man. Yeah. One of the ways that that plays out for you is the location from or for where you live. And you've been... Memphis, 14 years. When you moved to Memphis, where'd you go first? Was it right to Binghampton? No, we lived in a, it's a community called Arlington. Yeah. The suburbs of Memphis. And how long were you there? Three years. Okay. So you're there for three years. And then what made you think that moving to Binghampton, which, uh, how would you describe Binghampton first? I, I would describe Binghampton as an under-resourced community. Mm-hmm. Uh, rich history in the city of Memphis. Lecrae, when he lived in Memphis for two years, he lived in Binghampton. Yeah, he references that in a song. And he, he drops, when he he drops was, the Bing a time or two. Yeah, when, yeah. when he was on the pod, I said, uh, you're the second person from Binghampton. And I, he just, cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he I did. was expecting something. Dude, take the bait, Lecrae. Come yeah, on, I was like, man. come on, give me something. And he just like yeah. went right past it. Right, right past it. So under-resourced community. Yes. It's um, I, When I've stayed at your house, like I, I see what you're talking about. And... You guys were in Arlington, which is, how would you describe that part of Memphis? Uh, Suburb. Suburban. Yeah. yeah. So you, you go from 
suburban Memphis to an under-resourced part of Memphis in which uh, how how would you respond if you heard a gunshot in your community? Now? Yes. <laughs> I mean, man, now it's... <laughs> You know, when we first moved into Binghampton, we probably, you know, jumped to the ground, covered up the kids. Now it's just another day, kind of, kind of like another day. Yeah, yeah. And it, it doesn't happen all the time, but occasionally. You don't have any lawn mowing equipment because even if you park that underneath your carport, you don't think the likelihood of it being around is that high, right? You, yeah. when you're weed eating with, uh, with lawn equipment. Don't you say that Casey like watches through the window as you're out there? Uh, this year's probably a little different, but yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times your lawn equipment can get jacked. You know, if you're if you're out there close to the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, she's. she's but even she when you're near. out there doing yard work, doesn't she like kind of watch over you? Some <laughs> like I'm not sure. I mean, to... you know, her her sickness sickness on the enneagram probably. Uh, you know, imagining worst case scenario. Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure she's peeking through the blinds well, a little I, bit. I feel like I'm like, oh, I'm the, the guy in the suburbs dumping on the person. Like, I'm not trying to – I'm trying to, like, just give people an understanding of you're in a suburban community. You decide to move here knowing full well. This isn't a surprise to you. This isn't um, unexpected that this is the community's uh, – some of the struggles that they have and the way that, you know, people experience life there. You, you knew that. Uh, one of the stories you told me um, not too long ago, but you were at home and literally a woman – uh, in the middle of the night, bangs on the door, and she doesn't have any um, clothing on, and she's yelling for help. Yeah, man. That yeah, was, yeah. That, that was that was a tough one. That one still haunts me. Yeah, but dude, you know, incarnational ministry, man. This goes back way before Memphis when we were in grad school. You know, there always seemed to be a book that would sweep the ACU campus. I don't yeah. know if you remember this, but yeah. when Jim Simbola dropped uh, "Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire," it seemed like hundreds of us were reading it. Yeah, Donald Miller's what Blue was like that? Jazz. Blue like jazz seemed to kind of sweep the campus. And when Shaken Claiborne yep. wrote um, "Irresistible, Irresistible Revolution. Revolution," I mean, that was one that for a lot of us was like, "Oh, this is blowing our minds." Like, what does it mean to? Like, it was kind of sexy, something about it, you know? Like, yeah. hey, let's just move into a, a blighted part of any kind of, any city or town and try to have a ministry of presence. And, uh, you know, for maybe there was a season that it came from a, you know, messianic complex of, hey, we have what a community needs. Maybe not. But I don't know if you remember even in grad school, like there were just moments when I was trying to, and, and you were too, I think, but like what does incarnational life just look like? How do we enter into the pain of other people just to be present? Do you remember after, uh, I don't remember if it was Katrina or there was a hurricane where we had two buses that were coming up to Abilene with people who had lost their homes. And you and I went to care for people as they were coming off buses. I think two people died like on the buses when they were coming to Abilene. So there was just these moments of, I think God like, peeling back layers of, of my heart, of just giving me a vision of this is what family life could be. So we moved to Arlington, loved it, loved the cove we lived in. But for me, there was always this ache of wanting to be a part of a different kind of community or to raise my children under a, I don't say a better set of values. I say just a different set of values because I'm a firm believer that, man, we need people who who have incarnational passions living in, in neighborhoods all over 
not not just under resourced. I mean, everywhere people who are living with a purpose to try to love neighbors wherever they are. Yeah. For us, what that has looked like for eleven years, and we don't feel like God has said you will, you know, the rest of your life. No. This is all you can do. But for us, for eleven years, it's been it's been a commitment, and I mean, it's been hard. It's been difficult. You know, yeah, we've had. You know, there's gang violence. We've had neighbors who have died by, you know, um, uh, by, by, you know, gunshots and 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 things like that. Uh, I mean, we we hope that our children have have learned uh, just what it's like to be a good neighbor, to have lives of compassion, what it means to live among other people, what it means to learn from people from different walks of life. And we've tried to put our kids in those kind of places where we want them learning from Miss Mary and Miss Brenda, two people who have been in our community over 50 years, that uh, it's not just that we have something that people in our neighborhood need, but we just want to kind of establish roots and see what God's up to. So during this season, which has been 11 years, which is quite a commitment to to serve, to to move into the neighborhood and become a part of a community. Like that's a long time looking back on young Josh who heard and read what Shane Claiborne was talking about. Irresistible revolution. This is let's say 2002 or three or whatever it was uh, to where you are now, 20 years later after I've done, done this for a season of 11 years, biggest difference of how you approach or see or look at something like this. Biggest difference, um, man. That I don't think I don't think fifteen twenty years ago I really understood systematic injustice. Okay, I think it was still kind of individual to individual. Like, how can you just love a neighbor living next to you, but not understanding the systems that sometimes hold people down? Um, because I'm still in a place of privilege where we live. You know, if I chose to move today, I could put my house on the market. There are multiple neighborhoods I can move to throughout the city yeah. of Memphis. A lot of people in my neighborhood, they don't have that choice. What's like the it, difference? Well, I mean, there, there, there aren't a lot of places they could move. Are we talking about like financially? Uh, yeah, we, about, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm talking financially. I mean, just the, the being at a place of privilege where you have those kind of choices you can make. I mean, for a lot of people in poverty, like where they work or where they go to school or the daycare, like that kind of – I mean, they, they can't bounce around to a, a lot of different places or transportation issues or, you know, I live a mile and a half from Kroger. So I would say I live close to somewhere where I could go get fresh food. But for people who who have to ride the bus, a mile and a half to Kroger could be two and a half hours of an afternoon. So some of those challenges, um, you know, when it comes to just just systematic issues of trying to get speed bumps in a neighborhood or trying to get certain things fixed. Like if telephone poles break, you know, things like that, like it's given me an understanding of what it means to come alongside of people, to advocate for them, to learn from them. You know, there is individual forms of injustice or even racism that matter. Uh, But man, what does it mean to come alongside of people to advocate for an entire community, to to stand with them and Mm -hmm. to try to get the powers of the world to, you know, to, to be, to be gracious, hmm. you know, to certain neighborhoods. So that, that's really opened my eyes. Cause a lot of us would think, well, why don't you just move, right? Like if this is so bad, why don't you just go somewhere else? Because I've never had a situation where I didn't think I could move if I wanted to. Right. Is that the difference? Uh, I mean, I would say that's a, a, a different, yeah. yeah, a difference. Hmm. Sure. So you, young Josh didn't understand the systemic impact of, 
poverty. Is that a fair way to say that, you think? Systemic Im- impact of... I would say, yeah, poverty or challenges that come with poverty, forms of poverty. Okay. Sure. So you didn't understand that. What is something that has been a blessing that you would have never predicted would have been something that's a positive part of your life because of doing this? Uh, I think, you know, for Casey, me, and the kids... You know, we have uh, strategically placed ourselves in in in, the, in a neighborhood and in a school system for you know there for about eight years of our kids' educational life, where they were the minorities. We are the minorities, so we didn't have to go outside of our context to be in a place of diversity. We were in it every day, hmm. and you know, there have been times we've taken our kids to sporting events. And they're surrounded by nothing but white people, and they notice. And it's not a negative thing. It's not like where are the black people or where are the non-white, mm-hmm. but they they notice, and and we like that. We like that. You know, we've we've been we've strategically placed ourselves where we are learning from people who have different experiences in life than us. So your kids notice that. Are there other things your kids have been able to? acquire that you didn't at a young age because of this experience because my experience growing up was different from this and diversity and being aware of uh, or being compassionate for the plight of those with substantial uh, experiences of poverty like I didn't have that so (laughs) yeah what do you think you what do you love about how this has formed your kids I mean I I love the I love the diversity I love the just the compassion I love the I think for them, they. I hope that five years from now, ten years from now, they they'd be able to look back and know that service wasn't like a date you circled where we're going to go and uh, you know hand out turkeys or and those things can be really good, right? Like yeah. going to food pantry and food drives. But I mean, every day pre- presents us with opportunities to be present with people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, for us, a lot of times, you know, you've been to my house. We live on a busy street, a lot of foot traffic. We have a chain link fence, so it's not a private fence. So if you're in our backyard, anybody who walks by sees you, you see them. We have a dog. People love dogs. When we got a dog, we didn't realize that our dog has been probably the greatest instrument in seven years to introduce us to people because people love interacting with a dog. Mm -hmm. So they play with Grizz. Our dog's name is Grizz. We're able to go outside and we're able to, to engage with people. So just hopefully our kids seeing that. Being a good neighbor doesn't always have to be something that you uh, schedule or plan for. It's sometimes just being present. Like, yeah. And you can do this in any neighborhood. If if most of us chose to spend 15 minutes a day or just say 30 minutes a week where we sit on a porch outside or get in our front yard, the number of people that we interact with greatly increases, you know, just what it means to try to try to be present with people. Yeah, just being out there. There, ha- there's a bit of um, critique of sometimes people who are white, like us, moving into or visiting a situation and acting as though they have the ability to fix everything. They right. are the Messiah. The Blind Side is a movie that you know it's a feel good story for many people, but then as you learn more about it, you go, ah, there's there's some layers here, and there's some kind of white messiah stuff. As you find yourself as one of the few white faces in your community, are there ways that you are intentionally thinking through not trying to be the white savior? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. 
the blind side being a movie based on a story in Memphis, of course, Memphis community, you know, th- there was a lot of buzz about it. And I remember loving it, right? I remember loving that movie. This was over 10 years ago. Yeah. But I also remember some of my black friends, their critique was the black community does this for each other all the time. Yet there are no movies ever you know, made about it, right? Like, I mean, the black community has taken in, you know, other people and have brought them into their home. So there there was a, a little bit of that, that critique. Um, we have... That's a great... I've never heard that critique. That's... Well, and we've... Yeah. You know, from the moment we moved in, I, I sense that God told us before you move in, like, don't you dare think that you have what other people in your community need. Don't live like it. Don't act like it. I mean, it's taken us a long time to to build that trust with some of our neighbors. Mm-hmm. The way I think I try to approach it sometimes is, I mean, for some of my neighbors, I may be, I have been, like the only white person that they connect with on a on a regular basis. And can I help break down some of any barriers that have been there or any memories in the past of, of forms of oppression or injustice or just forms of, like just not like moments of just, you know, where uh, relationships may may have stung because of some kind of divide. Mm-hmm. Can I be that presence that can give them hope of a relationship that could be there in the future? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind. Greg Boyle, who does Homeboy Ministries out in L.A., mm-hmm. he talked about how people say, well, how do you reach the gang community? Or I forget the exact terminology. My apologies. And he goes, I don't try to reach, and I'm not going to get the language right, so I don't mean to disrespect what he's doing, but he's like, I don't try to reach or like minister. I just like try to be reached by them or get to know them. And in some ways, it's trying to like get rid of that language of like, I'm going to be the one who fixes them. But instead, like we're going to, like we're going to love each other. We're going to, I'm just going to learn how to be a faithful presence. And, uh, but being a faithful presence mean that, that like change doesn't happen. And many mm-hmm. of us want to be able to have like this, Hey, here's what was bad. And now it's good. Here's what was you know old. And now it's new. Like there's like, uh, like a tangible difference that a lot of us want. Do you find yourself going, Hey, cool. There's a substantial change that I can notice and, or maybe not seeing it and finding cynicism showing up. Uh, man, I think there have been many seasons in the last 11 years that Casey and I have questioned, are we making a difference for anybody, like mm-hmm. at all? And I think there are those moments when, uh, however we choose to live life with God, wherever that may be, mm-hmm. that we just have to trust if we are living life with God and we're trying to be intentional in relationships, that there's fruit that's going to come from that that we may never know about, ever. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and. And I don't even know, I mean, maybe in the new heavens and new earth, maybe we hear some of those stories and maybe we don't, but just trusting that even those moments of giving a wave or a handshake or a high five or a hi or a bye or how's it going or you're in your rose bush or, you know, your flower bed and just any interaction that in the kingdom of God, it may matter. Hmm. So trying to take advantage of those little moments, not just those big moments you have. That it matters. Yeah. That it matters. Yeah. For me, I feel like cynicism appears when I think things don't matter anymore. And to hold on to that, like the words of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Mm-hmm. I, that's central to me to thwart the temptation of cynicism. Mm-hmm. If someone's going, hey, I, I, I'm not making a difference. I want to see change. It's not happening. Like, what would, would you have a word for them about how to remember that it matters, even the small things? I would, man. I think this is where some of the work people have done um, 
even even Shane Claiborne in the past, some of the work he's done trying to to bring together the contemplative life in in a life of justice that they need each other. I mean, if you don't have some kind yeah. of spiritual practice in place to root you in the heart of God, man, it can you can go down cynical paths. You can become super arrogant, prideful. I mean, those spiritual disciplines root us to prepare us to be agents of compassion and justice and 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 mercy. Uh, you know, for us, man, I, I it, um, you know, January of 2018, we did, we got broken into on a Sunday. Yeah. Now, people can get broken into in Memphis, even here in Austin. You know, no matter what neighborhood yeah. you're in, I mean, these things happen. Carjackings, you know, yeah. breaking into cars. You know, this can happen in a lot of different places. So I don't want it to sound like, man, Binghampton is the only place where where it may happen. I mean, for us, and, and I do know a, a number of pastors who were broken into either on a Sunday morning during church or during funerals. Lindsay's car has been broken into. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an awful feeling, man. Whether it's a house or a car, you just feel violated. And I, I would say house is different than car. I feel like a, it. Yeah, it it shook me. It shook me pretty bad, man. That was that was a tough one. Um, you know, I we were we were just sitting down to eat some barbecue when the alarm company called Casey's phone, and she's like, "Hey, they just said, you know, there's there could be a broken window at her house. Do you want to dispatch agent or, or the police?" And Casey said, "Yeah." So, uh, you know, dude, I was thinking like barbecue's coming to my table. Like I want to eat some food, so I was like, "Casey, why don't you go home, check on the house? I'm gonna eat. I'll meet you later." <laughs> She's like, "Barbecue's so important." It yeah. didn't go that way, so man, I went home and dude, it just. I had about 45 minutes before Casey and the boys got home, and I didn't know what it was gonna do to do to them. You know, people who broke our house in our, our house, they took our TVs and some electronics, and that was it. So it was a quick break in. Uh, most likely, you know, it's somebody who knew where we were. They weren't looking to harm us. They were just looking looking for a few bucks, right? So. I just, I didn't know if it was going to cause night terrors for the kids. Has it? It hadn't, man. I mean, Casey and the boys, uh, they, it didn't seem to even like really mess with them much. With, you, which my wife being a six, I, I was going to say, yeah. Man, yeah. I, I just, but Casey being so loyal when we moved into Binghampton, like she embraced that as her people, her neighborhood. So Casey's 10 times a better neighbor than I've ever been. Like mm. she's, she's incredible. So, um, so, so I'm grateful for how God protected Casey and protected the boy's heart. And this was four years ago. Uh, so it took me it took me a few months to kind of shake that man. And and there were a lot of those moments for me that was like, man, is it even worth it? Like, is is it even worth it to, yeah, invest or build relationships? Knowing, man, at some point you may get burnt. At some point, sometimes the people who take these small things from you. There are people who know where you are or they know where the electronics may be or they know where the TV is in the living room. And, you know, 30 seconds, they can get through a window, get your stuff and leave. So uh, I I don't think at any point did my heart ever become callous, but I had to resist it. I had to fight against it. I had to develop spiritual practices and disciplines every day to uh, to protect my heart like what? from that. What what disciplines help protect you? Uh, you know, Luke, I consider uh, I have a 15 second window. That's what I call it. That when moments of uh, insecurity or moments of um, anger, bitterness creep up into my heart, I have 15 seconds to surrender it to God. And if I don't or if I do, I can usually go throughout the rest of my day living from a place of hope and joy in life. But if I don't, man, it can it can transform the next eight hours of my day. It can transform the next three days for me. Like if I. And it's a short window. I don't know for you if you may be more mature than me, man. I Definitely. don't know for you if Definitely. it's a shorter period of time or longer, but 
uh, you know, there been there were a lot of those fifteen seconds where I just had to surrender. Man, I, I what didn't are you saying? Want, surrender? Give me, give me some uh, practicality. God, God, take this from me, or God, um, if I don't hand this to you or communicate to you right now what this is doing to my heart. God, I, I don't want to minister. I don't want to live. I don't want to be the, a dad or a, or a husband that's living from a place where bitterness has taken a hold on me. So, okay, so help me to. So the bitterness comes in your heart and you're, hey, I, I can't believe this person. We're, we're projecting that it's probably someone in the community that you, you probably would re- recognize their face. I can't believe this person did this to my house. I'm so pissed about this. And then you say, God, take this anger from me. I'm giving this to you. Is, like what else is happening? Am I missing something? I, I no, I think know. no, I think that's it, man. I mean, sometimes it's uh, uh you know, for me, a uh, you know, four or five, six days a week, I'm at the church, either in the office or in meetings. So, man, the worship center is a place where I can go and, and surrender my heart before God. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, man, it may be two minutes of prayer. Sometimes it's twenty, thirty minutes that I just need to sit in the presence of the Lord. Because, uh, man, I, you know, I don't want ten years from now for me to have allowed a moment or an event to transform who I am. So trying to be proactive with what is forming and shaping my heart. Hmm. So that was, that was a big one. Cause I, dude, I didn't want that to impact the kind of neighbor I am when I'm on my front porch or I'm in the backyard or I'm you know, driving down a road in my neighborhood where I'm seeing people. I don't want that to cause me to live inside of a shell. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think that's, that's what God wants from us or of us. So, um, yeah, there's this, you know, you know, you want to protect your your spouse, your partner, your kids. You want them to be in a safe place. So, I mean, we, I, I, I don't live in in fear of this happening again, or that my, you know, even now, man, I'm with you. And last night, you know, being away from my house, I still, I think my family, I think they're in a good place. I think they're gonna sleep well. Um, yeah, I, I, that was four years ago. Is that right? Yeah. And you know, I've been together many times, just like when my ring doorbell goes off on my phone, I look at it, but I don't see you looking at yours any differently than I look at mine. It seems like you're not, I mean, you have more of them up than I do, <laughs> I mean, but, uh, but yeah. I'm just affirming what you're saying that it doesn't seem like it has, that you've done what scripture says to take every captive thought and make it obedient to Christ. Right. And it, it's not just people who, uh, live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the the way you guys have done that in your context but every one of us has ever struggled with bitterness like that it's the same practice or yeah. or resentment or anger or whatever no it is and and i think the way bitterness works at least for the enemy satan powers of darkness whatever you want to call the yeah. you know the adversary you know right uh i mean i think that the bitterness is not something that tries that he tries to overtake your life overnight I like to think of it like a slow drip in an IV. Dude, yeah. Just slowly can I cause this slowly to rot the soul. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because if it was like, I'm going to move all in, I'm going to take everything from you, you'd be like, yeah, no, hard pass. Right. I'm not going to let you in. There's an old line that I tried to put in a book, but I couldn't find the source. So maybe I just pretend like I came up with it. But the idea like that Satan comes into your door as a guest, sets himself up, uh, as a resident and doesn't leave until he becomes the master. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like evil comes in that way. It's just like just a little thought. But you at the front door, you say, hey, I'm, I'm checking this. You're not getting in the door. You had 15 seconds. That's all I want. It, it's like the person knocking on your door trying to sell you something like, nah, no, I don't need a new roof. I don't need you to sell me some nameplate to put on my, I, I don't need it. Right. And so you just like kicked it out right away. And I feel like that's a great practice for all of us who have any sort of like, 
reoccurring negative anxiety or anger or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no good, doubt. Man. That's really good, uh, boss. Thank that's that's great, man. And I, I love the what this season for your life has been. It's been an encouragement to me, and I love the work that you're doing. I love to say, yeah, we're in the same team. Oh yeah. Randy Harris years ago talked about how like when you're looking at like two different groups of people and they're having like a theological debate or even political or ideological debate and you're trying to figure out which which idea makes the most sense. He goes, Yeah, sometimes you just look and go, Who's on which side? Mm-hmm. You know? It like I don't want to be on that team with that person and to go as, Hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I like being on the same team as you because I go, yeah, that's he, he's better at this than me. Yeah. I like being on the same team as him. So thanks for the witness that, that uh, this season has been. And uh, yeah, it's it's great. And so what I'm going to do now, if you're cool with this, is I'm going to put uh, the sermon you just preached for our church at Westover up for the second half of the pod. And uh, Todd, who who runs all the tech stuff up, upstairs at our church, he sent it over. And for some reason, it went in my junk email folder and i don't know if that was prophetic or not but i yeah. saved it it was resurrected out of there and now we're going to play that so uh, Dude, thanks a bunch for... of my sermons have probably ended up in <laughs> junk folders man you know what's the great thing is that we've been friends long enough and i know you can do this with mine too but when you're telling the story about going on vacation with your elder from your church and your boys like this is the jumping off the cliff story like i knew that story already mm-hmm. i was like yep those are some good ones yeah no doubt is it yep. great that like I referenced this song and I got it wrong. Uh, the song by Ben Rector called "Old Friends." Shout out to the nice uh, listener. Thank you uh, for for giving me the correction on that. But uh, Josh is like living example of the power of old friends, where y- you know the old stories and you know what we've been through. And you were f- you were thinking Batman at my nephew Gage's birthday <laughs> when he was two, and now he's like a junior in yeah. college or something. So you go. We've got to find that picture one day, man. That would it be... lives out there somewhere. Yeah, you dressed up as we need it, Batman. Dude, I had the accent and everything, man. It was great. What accent does Batman have? Well, I mean, it's a low voice, Where's right? The, like the Christian yeah. Bale, yeah, like that one. Yeah, <laughs> Christian Bale's the best Batman next to you. All right, boss. Thanks for doing this. Hey, man. And... Much love. Keep up the good work, dude. You're killing it. Yes, sir. Proud of you. All right. We are glad that you are here. Please go ahead and take a seat however you got here. Whether you drove, you came here on your own, whether you took the bus, or if you're in my case, you got here in a pair of Brent Allen's shoes, we, we are glad. Luke, you trying out for the worship team. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, We're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Last week, we had a guest speaker from East Tennessee named Josh, and so you guys loved him so much, I decided to get another guest speaker named Josh from West Tennessee just to keep this whole thing going. I'm actually going to invite my dear friend Josh Ross to the stage. Let's give him a warm Westover welcome. Josh and I have been friends for over two decades now since our first Bible class at Abilene Christian University where he walked in in a pair of pajama pants and a Bible that was duct taped together. So the boy likes to read the Bible, which we appreciate. Now, there's a couple things you need to know about Josh. He's a uh, pastor in Memphis, Tennessee at the Sycamore View Church of Christ. He's been there for, is it 11? Over 14. 14, that was close. We know we're close. A lot of years. Uh, He's written five books, most recently, Anchoring in the Storm. Uh, But more importantly, his mom is Beverly Ross, which many of you know. And she's been here many times, and many of you love her dearly. And on top of that... Josh is the friend that my wife, more than any other friend, says, Luke, you need to spend more time with Josh because you're a better person when you're around him. 
Most of my friends are preachers. I don't know what that says about the rest of them. But it says a lot about you. Uh, so Josh, I'm so honored that you're here. We're honored that you're going to share the word with us. So let me pray over you and turn it over. Uh, God, I thank you so much for Josh. I thank you for the way that you've poured in him the gift of preaching. We thank you for his love of scripture. We thank you for his love of the church. We thank you for the way that he not only says these words, but he lives them out. And we pray that you would bless him now. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, man. My mom does send greetings. She's actually on a trip with the grandkids right now, coming back from D.C. And she said, you better tell that church. I said, hi. I was like, mom, I'm standing up to preach. And she's like, you tell them hi. So my mother, who has done some work here in the past with you, she sends uh, her greetings. I love your preacher. I consider Luke one of my closest friends in the world. When I think back on the defining moments of my life over the last 20 years, Luke has been present in them all. If his body wasn't there with me, he was there with his encouragement and his friendship. So from the death of my sister to my mother's cancer journey to having children to moves and transitions in life, he's been there through them all. I, I, I love him. Uh, Luke and I, like you said, have been friends over two decades. He and I both preached at smaller churches uh, while we were going through grad school at ACU. The very first time Luke ever asked me to preach for him, he was preaching in a little town called Moran, and uh, what he told me was, I need you to go preach a sermon, and there are going to be 15 people there, but if one family is gone, the church will probably be down to about seven, all right? Maybe some of you grew up in small little churches like this. So I went there and uh, was prepared to preach a sermon and to teach a combined class for uh, what could be 15 people. Luke didn't tell me that I also was the song leader for the day. I had the opening and closing prayer. I had the prayers for the bread, cup, and offering. And that uh, because of some mobility issues in the church, I may be the only one passing trays that day. I did everything. Now, I grew up I, my, most of my life. I've, I've been speaking in front of people, but song leading is something that totally skipped over me. My brother is a worship leader, has been for a number of years. Everyone in my family has the gift of singing, uh, but not me. So I stepped up, and my wife was already laughing before I even started the first song. Now, I've been in Church of Christ my entire life, so I knew a few things. I know Church of Christ cadence when it comes to uh, songs that you would say, hey, please turn in your Bible to number 811, number 811. So you say the full number, then you break it down to single digits. So I had that right. So we got to the right song. And then I remember seeing song leaders my entire life who would use their hand when they're uh, leading people in song. So I started moving my hand at what I thought was the right rhythm. And I'm not joking. My wife was sitting on the fourth row. And during the song, she put one hand in the air, the other hand on top, and she made a motion <laughs> down. <laughs> and she held that songbook up and just kind of laughed through it. All right? There was one guy in the church named Cowboy. Cowboy, I don't know if he ever did this to you. Look, he slept through everything everything. He slept through the songs. He slept through the sermon. So I had to wake him up and nudge him to give him the bread. He fell asleep between the bread and the cup. I nudged him again to give him the cup, slept through everything. Yet at the end of the service, cowboys walking down the center aisle to me, everything's over. And I could tell this guy's about to come and shake my hand and tell me nice job, young man. But I know he slept through everything. So I was going to ask him like, what was your favorite part? How did God move in your life? But he slipped me $50. So I decided not to say anything. All right. So I have preached for Luke before, and people have fallen asleep and have given me money. So if you feel like you need to go to sleep today, I take 50s, 100s, it doesn't matter. Sometimes I share that story when I preach at churches who have early services. I was preaching for one of our friends up in Dallas a couple of years ago. I shared that story. Somebody came up after church and said, I reached in my pocket and I didn't have 50, but all I had to give you, this is it. And they gave me $180. So I've told that story before. I've gotten 50, 180, so we'll just see what happens today, all right? Hey, 
I am uh, thrilled to be here with this church today. I've been in Memphis now for just over 14 years. Uh, My wife and I, we've lived in an under-resourced community now for 11 years in Memphis. We've been in a house for seven years before we moved into that house. We we bought this house for $50,000, 850 square feet. Our children were, both of them, were very small at the time. This is when my wife started going to Target, not to buy things, but to get away from all the noise in our house. This is an old house built in 1912. So it was a little small, two bedroom, one bath, uh, and it had a huge attic, but it had a, in the attic was, you know, it was one of those where the only access to it is you removed the tile and you had to like use a stepladder to get up in there. And at one point, there was a season that we lived there that squirrels got in our attic and we couldn't get them out. We set traps. They evaded traps. We, we would spray urine, not my urine, we would just spray urine around, like trying anything we could do, right, to keep these squirrels, like get them out of the attic, they just stay in the attic, and they would eat right above the master bedroom, right above where my wife and I would sleep, 4.30 in the morning, you could just hear them, not even closing their mouths while they eat, like just loud eating, these squirrels were in the attic, and we could not get rid of them, N- nothing seemed to be working. One time I found it, the squirrel was on top of the roof, and I was chasing it, and I, I, I've, I'm not a hunter, I never have been, but a friend loaned me a BB gun. I was chasing it around the house, trying to get a good shot, and I watched this squirrel jump, jump from a 25-foot roof and land on the ground and did one roll and took off running. Like, this was like Navy SEAL squirrel. Like, I could not get rid of them worth anything. Finally, finally, we were able to get rid of squirrels, but it seemed like it took forever. And when I think back on like the last two years of everything we've experienced from COVID and sicknesses and social unrest and political division is all the things happening and going on in the world. Like it, sometimes it feels like there are those things that are just like stuck in an attic and we just can't get rid of them. Like they just won't go away. Like we, we think we know what can make for a better world, but the things that are keeping it from a better world, it's like they just won't go away. So I just, I want to bless you today. I want to open up a part of scripture to you today. I want to speak a word of hope, of affirmation, of encouragement. And the place I want to use today to do that is the book of Ezekiel. If I were to ask you what you know about the book of Ezekiel, I would assume, if those of you who know anything about Ezekiel, what you would tell me is, you know, the, valley, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel chapter 37. And you may think, crazy prophet, right? <laughs> crazy prophet, he's crazy. And you may not know much else. But the vision I want to show you today in Ezekiel isn't Ezekiel chapter 37, it's Ezekiel chapter 47. It's become one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Let's walk through it, all right? If you're trying to find the Ezekiel in your Bible, you kind of open it up in the middle. It's a pretty big book next to Jeremiah and Isaiah. But here's how this vision goes. The man, and remember, this is a vision, all right? The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple face east. And the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, And he then brought me out through the north gate, led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. Now, hang on one second if you'll stay back on that. That, that, Look at at what's happening. The the image that Ezekiel is given isn't just the temple. I want you to think like the holiest place in the temple. 
the holiest place in the temple, there's a trickle. When you think trickle in a house or trickle in a building, you may think pipes breaking or leaky faucets. It's like a little drip, something really small that is happening. And now if you go to the next slide in verse 3, here's, how, here's what it says. As, as this man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. A thousand cubits. We're talking elbow, uh, elbow to wrist, about 18 inches. When you see thousand cubits, maybe the best way for you to think about it is five football fields. Here to torches. That should be kind of close, right? All right, so five football fields, a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water that was ankle deep. Can you think about a time in your life where you've been in ankle deep water? Maybe you've been at the beach or you've been at the lake. Can you imagine walking a thousand cubits, five football fields, in ankle deep water? You're going to have to pick your legs up a little bit, but you could probably do it. Ankle deep water. And he measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. Knee-deep water, five football fields. Now you're having to work a little bit as you work through knee-deep water. It goes through knee-deep water, and then he measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. Now we're talking about the waist. So now we have gone from what is a small little trickle inside of the temple that then turned into 500, uh, 500 yards, a thousand cubits of ankle-deep water that then turned into a 1,000 cubits of knee-deep water, then a 1,000 cubits of waist-deep water. And now if you go to the next one right here, he measured off another 1,000, but now it was a river that I could not cross. Now it's a rushing river because the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in and a river that no one could cross. And then he asked me, look at this, son of man, do you see this? Like, do you see it? Are your eyes open to see what's happening right now? And I don't think it's just eyes open to see what is right now in front of you in the vision. But do you know what you have just experienced? Something really small that started in the temple, that started in sacred space. And now, over a period of time, it has progressed and it has grown into something that is now a rushing river. If you go to the next slide. And then he led me back to the bank of the river. I don't know in the vision how they got there. They go from rushing river to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters into the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, nothing lives there. Nothing ever has. Yet the vision he receives is that through what God is doing... Even the Dead Sea, it's going to become fresh. Like God's going to reverse the Dead Sea into something that is life-giving. If you go to the next slide. Swarms of living creatures will live there. Wherever the river flows, there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eglium, and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. And then the vision ends with this right here. And the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves, and this right here is almost word for word, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. So toward the end of the Bible, the vision John receives about the new heavens and the new earth is building off imagery and language from Ezekiel chapter 47 where their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. And their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Revelation 21 is healing of the nations. Think about this vision. 
Something so small that begins in the temple, begins in sacred space, where the community of the people of God would meet to worship, to offer sacrifices, to, to connect to the divine. And that little trickle turns into something that blesses the entire world. Isn't that who the church is called to be? Like we come together to experience sometimes something so small from God, just some small glimpse of a song we sung this morning or a time around the table or in the message or a prayer that was prayed, something small that will leave the Westover Hills Church and throughout this week will bless the entire community around us. This is a vision that Ezekiel receives. And in a way, in the vision, it's like Ezekiel's being asked, will you step into the water? Like, and this becomes like an invitation throughout all of Scripture. Like, here is, a water, here is a river that God is providing that is good for the entire world. Will you step into it? My family, we often travel from Memphis. We go over to Heber Springs. It's a lake in Arkansas. And we go and we play around for a day or two. And there's this one place at Heber where you can go out and there are cliffs that are you know, 8, 10 feet high. Kind of small, but if you get up there, it feels like you're jumping off a skyscraper. My kids were seven and five and were over there. And they love jumping off these small little cliffs. Now, when you're jumping off small cliffs, you can look in the distance and you can see the big cliffs. And depending on the water levels and the rain levels of the summer, sometimes those cliffs are anywhere from 25 to 30 feet high, 35 feet high. And the water was low at this time of year. And I was hoping that my boys didn't see the bigger cliffs because I knew they were going to want to go jump off them. And you can't really drive there. You got to walk over to those cliffs. Those of you who, uh, if there's anybody here who attended Harding University, there's a good chance you've been and you've jumped off these cliffs. So I didn't want them to see it, but they saw it. So they said, we want to go jump off those. And Casey's like, let's just take them over there and see what happens. And I was like, right, we're going to walk all the way over there. And the boys are not, they're going to get to the edge and not going to want to do it. And then we're going to walk all the way back. And we were on this trip with some of our friends. And he's one of the elders of the church where I preach. His name's Patrick. And Patrick and his wife, Chauncey, and their kids, Demetrius and Cha- uh, uh, um, Tamara. So all eight of us took this journey all the way to the big cliffs. And when we got to them, my boys took off running to the edge. So we stop him. I'm like, guys, you can't jump in. Like an adult needs to go in first. So I look at my buddy Patrick and I said, man, you're the shepherd of the flock. Like you're the elder of our church. Like you're supposed to guide the sheep. So I think it's only right for you to jump in. And if Patrick was here right now, he would tell you exactly what he told me. And what he told me was, Josh, you just need to know black people don't jump off cliffs like this. That's what Patrick told me. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So Casey looked at me and she said, Josh, I'm not doing it either. I was like, Casey, I'm going to jump in. And then I'm going to jump in, then the boys are going to be scared, and they're not going to do it. So I went ahead and I jumped in, and before I could resurface, I heard a splash to my right and to my left. They're both my boys. <laughs> and then that's what they wanted to do the next 30 minutes is jump off the cliff. Now, I don't want to tell you today that faith or the invitation of God is for you to walk up to 30-foot cliffs, because some of you may think about that, and you're like, that is something. Like, I don't want to think about faith in that kind of way. But there's this invitation of God of just come to the edge wherever you are right now, and maybe the best you have like to offer God or the step for you right now is maybe ankle deep is the best, best you have. God knows what to do with people who want to step into ankle deep water. God knows what people want, what he can do with people who step in the knee deep water, waist deep water. Just God is inviting you, like just step into the river. Like there's this, there's this small river, this the small trickle that begins, it's in the place where people gather and it's going to turn into this raging river that can bless the entire world and will you do it? Let me walk you through just a little bit of Ezekiel's life real quick. 
I just want to toss like seven or eight things at you. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel, more than any other prophet in the Bible, gives you more details about his life. It gives you more dates and times than anybody else. And in Ezekiel chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 and 3, it says this. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. What is it? Ezekiel what? The priest. It's one of the only times in the Bible you've got somebody who's priest and prophet. The way he, he is described in Ezekiel once, not as a prophet, though he is one. He's a priest. He's one of divine connection. He's helping to take the hand of God and the hand of people and to help connect them. Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. And there the hand of the Lord was on him. Let's go through a few bullet points if you go to this next one right here. He was born in the year 621. In the Bible, the year 621 was in the year of Josiah's reform. He was born in the midst of spiritual revival that only lasted a few years. But surely somehow, like he felt the impact of that. He was born in a time when the people of God, there was this fire of God that lasted a few years. The next bullet point right here, what you see is he was a part of the second deportation to Babylon in 597. So now the people of God have been taken out of the country. They've been taken to Babylon. And you can just do the math right here. We're talking about him being around 24 years old when he was taken from Jerusalem. And now he is a captive. This next one here. He's a prophet and a priest, which very few people are prophets and priests. So he's one who is trying to speak truth about God to people. And he's also deeply concerned about hearts connecting to the divine. The next right here. He was called in the ministry. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 1. God called him into this work. The next bullet point. He was married. We know he was married. And in Ezekiel chapter 24, we also know his wife died while he was in his early 30s. So now he's a guy who knows what it's like to lose a loved one at a very young age. He's a widow. If you look at the next, uh, just a couple of more. He lived down by the river, right? You, you know, <laughs> he lived by the river. And, and for people in Babylon, for people in exile, in Acts chapter 16 with Lydia, like sometimes when people were taken away from their land, they would find a river and it would become a temple for them. It would come, become a place of worship when they didn't have a place of worship. So that, that's what it became, lived live down by the river. And then if you look at the next bullet point, he prophesied for about 20 years. And I think, I think something like this is important. Because right? sometimes you may read like the book of Isaiah. And you think Isaiah took some writing leave or he went away for a week, spent time with God. God revealed some things to him. And then he wrote the book of Isaiah, like all 66 chapters. Isaiah was written over about 40 year period of time. Ezekiel wasn't just Ezekiel going away to some cabin with God where God inspired him to write what we now have is 48 chapters in Ezekiel. 20 years. Think more like a journal. Somebody who's encountering God every few months or every few years there's some revelation, there's something that happens and he's writing it down. Over 20 years he writes what we now have is the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's a really sad book. Because one of the questions in the book of Ezekiel is about what, what is the, what, like what's God going to do about God's glory when people rebel, when people care about worshiping idols more than the living God? In Ezekiel chapter 9 through 11 are three of the saddest chapters in the entire Bible because God makes the decision to remove his glory from the temple. 
It's like God was like, hey, I, I can't take this anymore. Like your rebellion is so great. You want to worship idols? You go worship all the idols. I can't take it anymore. The glory of God is removed from the temple. And the rest of the book of Ezekiel, God is moving and speaking truth and speaking things through Ezekiel. And then it ends with 13 chapters of hope and restoration and life. And the very end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 48, the very end of it, Ezekiel is giving a vision of what the future Jerusalem is going to look like. And he's giving all these dimensions of the city. But the very last verse you read in the book of Ezekiel is that the name of the city is not going to be Jerusalem. The name of the city is going to be the Lord is there. Ezekiel is painting a picture for the people of God. Of even when you don't know what the future is going to look like. Even all the uncertainty you are in right now. He's speaking to people who are in exile, far away from home. And he's painting a picture of what the future with God can and will look like. Because there's nothing God can't redeem. Nothing God can't restore. And the vision in Ezekiel 47 is one I now hold close to me. Something that's so small that turns into a raging river and blesses the world. So I've been praying over this the last couple of days. I woke up this morning, kind of looked over my notes, and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to leave the hotel early. I'm going to go find where the Westover, Westover Hills Church of Christ campus is. And when I got here, I turned maps off on my phone, and I just spent 30 to 45 minutes where I just drove around this entire community as I was praying through what Ezekiel 47 can and will look like for this church. And I know so many ministries you are invested in, the heart you have for God. I've known about you for over 20 years from friends who grew up here, who became my friends at ACU. You are a church that has a heart for God. And there's story after story, almost 50 years of testimonies coming from the life of this church. So I just spent time driving around, just praying for the kingdom of God to come right here in this community as it is in heaven. And as I was driving, it taught me some things about the community. The Arlington, I think Arlington High School right here next to you, their girls lacrosse team won the championship this past year i wanted to go and just leave a note on their sign like congratulations from a preacher in memphis as i was driving around i was praying through ezekiel 47 praying about like god bringing right here to your community like bringing this kind of restoration that you read about in Ezekiel 47. And as I was praying of God, bring your fruit, like bring your kingdom right here. I pulled up right next to Torchies. And it was like this gift of God of like, this is part of kingdom of God coming right here on earth. And then I got to this part and as I was praying of God, I just help us to trust you. Like I think in Ezekiel, it was hard for people to trust that God could bring restoration out of something that was broken. And as I was praying that, I drove right up on Luby's and I, I didn't know what to make of that, all right? You may love Luby's. If you do, it's great, all right? I didn't know what to make of it. But this was just a way I was praying through neighborhoods as I saw dozens of people walking dogs this morning, deer in front yards. It was like things were still growing even though we're in a drought. As I was praying for God to be doing the same thing in individuals and family units, both right here around this community and wherever you live. Something so small that turns into something that's bringing fruit to the entire world. Um, 
I hesitated whether to tell this story or not, but I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to ask for grace because there may be a detail or two I get wrong. How's that to set up a story? <laughs> In 2005, I spoke here. At, you, you used to have a, a youth event. I think you did it every quarter. It may have been called like crossover or some, something like that. Right? At the time, Rick McCall was, uh, was your only youth minister or one of your youth ministers. So there was one year that... Uh, Luke and myself and Colt McCoy were three of the speakers for that. I'm sure most people remember you and me. They, I doubt they ever, they, they probably don't remember that other guy who spoke. But I, I remember I was uh, speaking at this youth event uh, here. This is back in 2005. And Rick, who was up at ACU for some event, we met that day, a few of us, to plan worship for, the, for that event. And as we were planning worship and I was sharing what I was going to talk about, we were talking about how we wanted to end that worship experience with all of these teenagers. And I said, well, man, here's, here's what I would like to do. I would like to build up to a moment where I can have a prayer, and then together we can sing the song, There's a Stirring Deep Within Me. And Rick started to cry. And he said, you have no clue what that song means to our church. And here's where I may get a detail or two wrong, and you can correct it later in the service. Uh, but I believe it was in 2005, you had... A loved man in this church who was, I believe he's in the final stages of ALS. And the way Rick told the story was there was a worship service on a Sunday morning here where you were singing, there's a stirring. And this man who was very weak and frail during the song found the strength to push himself up in his wheelchair and to stand up and to raise his hands. And in that song, that there's a stirring deep within me about seeing God face to face. The witness of this man in worship was a reminder to this church that even through death, people connected to God win. That hope lives on. And sometimes it's those small little glimpses of the movement of God in people, in an assembly like this, reminding each other that we are clinging to hope no matter what. We are going to God no matter what. We are going to be people who choose joy no matter what. Small glimpses, what Rick shared with me was that moment in a worship experience, something that seemed so small, was something that injected hope inside of people. These small little ways we encounter God that end up blessing us and through that bless the entire world. So a few years ago, my wife went on a cruise to celebrate our 15th anniversary. And my wife and I, we do a trip with no kids every year. We've honored this for 15 years now of having children. People ask how we do it. Is it hard leaving our kids? My wife's like, we love our kids, but it's not hard at all. We pull up to the grandparents' house. We slow down to five miles per hour. We've taught our kids how to just fall out the car and we get out of here, all right? So we went on a Mediterranean cruise. And there was one day we're out at sea and Casey, my wife, could live by the pool for 12 hours and call it one of the greatest days of her year. Like, yes, Casey loves water, loves being next to water. And I was back in the room and I just, I had this encounter with God as I was reading Luke chapter 14. And I don't want to sound like here's a guy who goes on cruises and he spends all of his time in a cabin reading the Bible. It's not, I, I don't do it, but this was a day that I was just, I was in Luke chapter 14. And as I was having this encounter with God, as I was just praying through what it means for my life, 
I sense the Lord say to me, and this doesn't happen all the time to me, I sense the Lord say, Josh, instead of reading this right now in the cabin where you and I are having this connection, I want you to go to the lounge on level five. I just want you to go and read there. And I don't know if you've ever had these moments because I'm questioning myself why this is happening. Like, is my mind playing tricks on me? Or if this is God, if this is crazy, yet I'm going to just have an act of obedience because maybe this is the Lord. Then if I look crazy in the eyes of anybody else, if I look crazy while I'm trying to be obedient, I'm okay with it. So I went to level five in a lounge. And when I got there, the only people there was the bartender and me. So I sat in a chair with my Bible. I had my earbuds in. I think I was listening to some Hillsong worship. And I'm there as I'm looking out over the sea, looking out at shore. We were at a port that day. And I'm just reading Luke 14 for about 20 minutes. And I was about to leave. I was like, maybe the Lord just wanted me to just test. Maybe this was just, will you be obedient? And it was about that moment I felt a tap on the shoulder. And this guy said, excuse me, do you mind if I ask what you're reading? I said, well, I'm reading, I'm reading the Bible, and if you're asking specifically what I'm reading in the Bible, I'm reading a guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. His, his name was Luke. And the guy said, do you mind if I sit down for a minute? And this is a guy who 20 years before that moment, he was a chaplain in the Navy, yet through some brokenness in his life, he had kind of fallen away from faith, fallen away from God, had rejected God. And he felt like he was in a season of his life where God was pulling him back into faith. But there were just some events and circumstances in his life that were drawing him back in. And now he's walking through this lounge and bumps into a guy who has his Bible open to Luke. So we processed Luke chapter 14 for a little bit. And then we talked about what it was like for God to take somebody who has pushed away from God for a season of their life, yet God is bringing them back in. I was able to share with him and remind him of things he knew earlier in his life, that we serve a God whose restoration is, restoration is always on God's mind. That we're never too far from God. We're never too far from redemption. God continues to reach for us. And when we're too weak for reach, to reach for God, God is he's reaching for us. So three questions or two questions and one statement to you today. One, will you trust God in the uncertainty? Just like Ezekiel, when the cloud of uncertainty hovers, will you trust that God has restoration on his mind? Two, sometimes we want the outcome of what we are not willing to begin Sometimes we want outcomes of what we're not willing to begin. We want deeper forms of righteousness, yet we're not willing to begin a path of righteousness. Or we want God's restoration, but we're not willing to take a step into the river. Sometimes we want the outcome of fruit and righteousness and restoration, but what are the steps we are taking to get there? And lastly, for you, for your family, for the church, will you step into the river of God today? Whether it's ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, God is inviting you into a deeper place. And may the power of God continue to use this church to take moments you have together as a church to bless the entire community around you. Let's pray together. And if you don't mind, we just take your palms and put them palms down on your lap. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that's too uncomfortable, but just... Sometimes my heart follows where my posture takes it. 
And with your palms down, I just want it to represent something you need to lay down at the feet of God today. Something you need to lay down at the throne of God. I want to encourage you, maybe just have a little moment with God. God, today there's some things I'm holding. I need to let them go in your presence. And it may be an emotion. It may be forms of insecurity. Maybe sin. Uh, Just will you release them at the, the feet of God today? Maybe an exercise you try later on at your house and you can take a little more time doing it. Just a palms up, palms down. Will you turn your palms, palms up and just for a moment as a church, just receive from the Lord. We serve a God who doesn't hoard all of God's gifts. He loves to dispense them. And just as Ezekiel in this vision had to go to the bank to sit still, to look around, to see all the restoration around him, just for a minute in prayer, just... Like open the eyes of your heart to see that God is doing things all around you. And sometimes we're too busy to see it. Sometimes we're too busy doing good things to see it. With hands and hearts open, we're asking God today to fill us with his spirit and with awareness of what God is doing all around us. And God, my prayer today is through the power that was able to lift Jesus out of a grave, that that power will be upon my friends in this room that you will bring them to life in every way imaginable. Through Christ we pray. And the whole church said,